Man, beautiful words to, uh, to sing about death being no more, especially in Jim's prayer today, thinking about the Jewish community that was taken, some of their lives were taken from them. We just think of what a privilege it is, and it's so good to hear your voices this morning, uh, just worshiping God together. Uh, well, my name is Gavin Brand. I'm the director of uh, Youth and Kids here at City Church, and it's good to be with you this morning. We're going to be looking at Romans 14, 13 to 23. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. While you do that, uh, think about a time. I just want to make sure this is, yeah, this is working. Okay. Think about a time that you, uh, you did some pure thinking. You just did some pure cognition, abstract thought, right? If you, if you ever tried to do that, you realize quickly that you can't do it, that you are immediately thinking about something, that your mind goes somewhere, has some picture. Maybe it's what you had for breakfast. Maybe it's what you are having for lunch. Maybe it's what you're going to have uh, tonight for dinner. Maybe it's uh, a, fam- a loved one or a famous person. And that's because you and I are intentional beings. We have a direction. Our thoughts are not purely abstract. They go somewhere. Our hearts move in a certain direction. And that's because we have deep desires and longings. The way to say that is that we are people that love. James K. Smith, the philosopher, said, We are primordially and essentially agents of love, which takes the structure of longing and desire. So let's do another thought experiment. You're in your car. You're about to go home from work. You've been there all day. You're ready to go home. And what do you do? You're about to jump in. Do you pull out your phone and look at the GPS to to look at the directions? Do you pause and think maybe, okay, I need to go right on Bologna. I need to go left on North Charles. You think of all the street lights and what lane you're going to go in. No, you don't do anything like that. You just hop in your car and you drive right home because you know instinctively how to get there. You, you know it in your bones, right? You could probably drive home blindfolded from work or to school if you're a kid, right? And that's because not only are we intentional beings, we are feeling beings. We have an affective component and our lives are, are partially and wholly constructed in the, in the idea that we feel our way through the world. If you've ever seen one of those Rem, Rembrandt uh, sketches where he, uh, he sketches the, the blind man with his hands out, we kind of go through life like this a lot of the time because we don't know. We're not omniscient. We don't know what's going to happen next. So we are creatures that feel our way through the wheel. We're affective. We have loves and desires and longings. And that's actually because we're desiring beings, beings that are controlled primarily by what we love. So let me give you an example. You're sitting on the couch watching your favorite show, watching ESPN or whatever Netflix show you're into, and your roommate or spouse gets up to do the dishes. And you think, I should probably help them do the dishes. But I'm watching my show right now, so I don't really want to do that. So is thinking enough in that moment to get you to go help them? Maybe not. Now, if you add a belief to that, man, I believe that helping my spouse or roommate do the dishes right now is the best thing for them, and it is good for me, and I know that I can, that would just be, I have a strong conviction about that. Would that be enough? I mean, maybe we're getting close, but probably not. But if you looked at your spouse or roommate and you thought, man, I want to go help them. I love them. I care about them, and my primary desire is to help them right now with the dishes instead of watching my show. Certainly, that would be enough, and that just goes to show that we are primarily uh, loving beings, mostly our, our actions are directed by what we care about and desire. St. Augustine said that the Christian life could be summarized in two ways. Love God and do what you want. And if you understand what he means by want there, he means whatever you most truly want to do, 
That is, if you have been changed by the Holy Spirit, if you've been renewed by the blood of Christ, your life is new, your heart has actually gotten new desires. That's what it means to become a Christian. And when your heart has new desires, you actually want the things that God wants. You hate the things that God hates. And so you love God primarily, then all of your other desires will follow. And the things that you want to do will actually be the things that God wants as well. In other words, our actions aren't determined by our thoughts, beliefs, or emotions. They're determined primarily by our longings, desires, and loves. And what's so biblical about that is that our loves can be trained. In other words, what you love, and I don't mean like trivial things like the Ravens or chocolate cheesecake or any other thing like that, what your vision of the good life is, what you're moving towards in life, can be shaped and molded. And that's exactly what Paul's going to get at in this passage. He's going to say that instinctively, our primary desire is mostly to please ourselves, mostly to care and make, do what makes us happy. But Paul also knows that that's not how churches work. If you have a group of people that all desire different things, they can't be on mission. They can't do the goal that Jesus has put in front of us. So he gives us a way in this passage to walk with love in the midst of our different loves, in the midst of our differences. So let's pray about that and then read our text together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the way that it shapes and molds us and redirects our hearts toward you. And we pray that uh, it, you would use it to transform our loves from ourselves into the loves of others. So let's read in verses 13 to 23, Romans chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, or excuse me, that was, uh, therefore, do not, let, do not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. But the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the, thing, the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Well, if you're like me, your greatest desire is to please yourself most of the time. And if we believe with Augustine that humans are primarily loving beings, the problem with us then is not that we love and have desires— to please ourselves, is that our desires are, moved, are directed and aimed at the wrong thing. They're aimed at ourselves instead of others, instead of God and others. So what is going on here? Well, how does Paul's instruction to the community of competing desires help us today? Well, last week we started talking about the idea of Christian liberty. Patrick left us with this quote by Martin Luther, that a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none, and a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. So we're beginning to deal with this issue of Christian liberty. That's what Paul's getting at. It's the idea that there is, in Christianity, there's a core set of essential doctrines, practices, beliefs 
to find in the great creeds of the faith things like the deity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the reality of the Holy Spirit who renews and convicts and changes believers, the, the mission of the church, which is the vehicle of God's mission in the world. Those things are essential. We hold those closely. We don't adapt to those. And then there are things that are non-essential, things like eating and drinking that Paul just spoke about. And what's wonderful about this is that Christianity, then, is a religion of liberty. There is freedom for personal conviction. There's compassion for people's backgrounds and where they've come from, where they have come from. And there is space for different expressions of faith in different cultural contexts. So Christianity as a religion is not overly constricting, and it is a religion of love and liberty. But at the same time that we have been given this love and liberty, there's also a component of service, just like Martin Luther was talking about. That, but although we are perfectly free, we are also perfectly servants of one another, that our freedom is for the love of each other. If you were to summarize Paul and Luther in the same way, we are perfectly free and perfectly servants at the same time. So what does that mean for us? How are we going to walk in love with one another? One pastor said, some of us want everything to be disputable. When it comes to these non-essential matters, we want everything to be open. We want to understand and just be able to do what we want to do in in the negative sense. And some of us want everything to be closed-handed. We want nothing to be disputable. We want right rules that are quick and easy to follow. And we tend to to go on either side of that. Another way to say that is we have a, a really hard conscience, a really tight conscience. We're a little bit tightly wound. Our conscience is very hard. Some of us have a really soft conscience. So let me give an example. You have, uh, you're walking along the street, and you see a piece of trash, and you, you think, maybe I should pick that up. But you don't. You're in a hurry, so you keep walking, you keep walking, and your conscience pricks you again. You're like, ah, oh, but if I don't pick up the trash, maybe a kid will touch it, and they'll get sick, and it'll be my fault. You start going through all the scenarios. Maybe a bird will eat it, and then they'll get sick and die, and you start freaking out. So you turn back, you pick up the trash, right? Most of us would say, hey, that's good. You did a good thing. But imagine if you did that every day. Every time you're driving along the freeway and you saw trash, you thought, I've got to stop. We would probably say that you have a very weak conscience. You have a very sensitive conscience would be a positive way to put it. On the other hand, some of us have a more harder conscience. And an example of that would be like, you're on Facebook, you're scrolling through, you're seeing all the videos, the images, and you come across a video of a starving child in a third world country, right? What do you do? You, it's got this caption. They're kind of appealing for your, your moral, your financial, your prayer support. And you might just keep scrolling because you think that's over there. I'm, I'm just looking to get a dopamine hit here. I'm just trying to scroll Facebook. We might say, you, that's not a good idea. That's, that's not what you're hoping for. That's someone with a harder conscience. And you might say, well, okay, that's a little bit binary. We don't really one or the other. Maybe we have a hard conscience in one area, soft conscience in another, so there's some gray there. But generally, we tend to fall one way or the other, right? And the examples I gave just lead to one question. How are Christians supposed to behave in these non-essential matters? What are we supposed to do with all this? And the answer to that is the big idea of what Paul is saying here. The big idea of the text is that because we are free in Christ, we must not desire to please ourselves. And when I say free in Christ, we're talking about everything that Paul has said in Romans up until now, which is that Christ has died, he's risen, the Holy Spirit convicts and changes us, makes us into believers, and we become free. And there are a whole class of things outside of the normal core Christian doctrines which are now negotiable. And 
although those things are non-negotiable, there is also a desire not, we need to desire not to please ourselves, that our freedom has been purchased so that we can love with a pure heart one another. In other words, the answer to the question of how Christians should behave in non-essential matters is that we're to walk in love. And Paul's going to give us four ways to do that, okay? Four ways. Not, we're going to love by not causing others to stumble. We're going to love by giving up our own personal freedom. We're going to love by practicing unselfishness. And we're going to love through radical trust in Jesus. So first, love by not causing others to stumble. If you look at verse 13 and 21, in 13 he says, Therefore, let, no, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And in 21, he says, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So in the church in Rome, there was two groups. And Patrick kind of mentioned this last week. There's the group that were Gentile, formerly Gentiles, non-believing pagan people, and they were now Christians. And then you had the group that was formerly Jewish, that had come to accept Jesus as the Messiah, And they had this whole background of religious belief where their practices, they had the kosher food laws, right? And for them to eat certain meats, particularly meats that had been sacrificed in certain pagan worship services, really pricked their conscience. They had a really soft conscience about that issue. So they did not eat the meat, and it was a stumbling block for them. But the other group, the group of Gentile believers, it wasn't a stumbling block for them. They had been eating this stuff their entire life. They'd been partaking in the pagan services. So for them, it was totally fine, and they had no conscience about it. But the problem in the church at that time was that the people that didn't have a problem with it were pushing the people that did to violate their conscience and go ahead and eat it. And instead of kind of lovingly walking with them and slowly convincing them over time, they were saying, hey, this is great meat. You guys need to eat this now. Like, you're holding me back from partaking in my freedom in Christ. And after all, Christ declared all foods clean. In, in, in chapter 7 of Mark, he says, it's not what comes out of your mouth that defiles you, or not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, rather, what comes out. And Mark adds that little note right after that, that by saying those things, Jesus declared all foods clean. So we know that food is not the real issue. In fact, Paul right here says, the people that are in verse 14, that those that believed it was unclean, or that it was clean, were in the right theological understanding, that it actually is clean, that he goes along with Jesus and said, it's fine to eat this meat. But then, but the people that don't think it's clean shouldn't have to be forced to do something against their conscience. Maybe you've seen uh, the movie Hacksaw Ridge. He's a conscientious objector in the World War II, right? And he's somebody who didn't feel like he could pick up a gun and shoot another human being even in the cause of war, especially a war against something as evil as the Nazis. But he decides he wants to serve anyway, so he goes into, he becomes a soldier, and he gets all kind of ridicule and abuse. But at the end of the movie, he saves like 30 people, and it's a true story. He doesn't kill anyone. He saves lives. So there is something about the conscience that we should not violate, and that kind of, that idea comes right from this passage. Now, what's so fascinating is that in the passage the language that Paul uses actually says that if you push someone to do something against their conscience, you're actually pushing them to sin. And when you push someone to sin, you're actually pushing them one step closer to hell. And maybe you're here and you think, hell's not a real thing. I don't believe in that. Well, I would encourage you just to read the New Testament very closely. Jesus talks about it quite a bit. I'm not going to explain the whole concept, but the idea is that if you push someone to do something against their conscience, you're causing them to sin. There was a pastor, his name is uh, Ian Hamilton, and I was listening 
uh, Jordan and I were listening to him when we were uh, engaged, and he had, this, he had this sermon about marriage we were listening to. And in the sermon, he, he talked about a friend of his who was a Ph.D. student somewhere in the U.K. at some prestigious university. And at the, at the university, the this, this student was a very pious, loving, gentle, humble man. And he, came, he was diagnosed with cancer. And he was Ian's friend, and Ian was very concerned about him. But in his la- he was given uh, a certain amount of months to live, and so he decided to write letters to his, his, his wife, who he had only been married to for a short time. And he knew that he would not, she would survive him, and he would die before she would, and so he decided to write her letters. And the first thing that he wrote in the first letter that was actually later, Pastor Ian was able to read at the funeral service, was that my job as a husband is to love and see my wife safely to the gates of heaven. That is for him, and that is the biblical understanding of what it means to be a Christian. What Christian love looks like is to push people toward heaven, to walk alongside them all the way to the the pearly gates. And maybe you've had an experience in your life where you have been pushed toward heaven, where someone has come along and encouraged you and been so joyful that you are with them and been so helpful when you are down. And they've encouraged you not to do something you shouldn't do, and they've encouraged you to do things you should do. And that is the church acting at its best. And in those moments, we're pushing people towards heaven. But maybe sometimes you've had an experience where you've been pushed in the other direction, where somebody has said, do you need to do this? And it didn't go with your conscience. And in that moment, they were pushing you towards sin. So it's really important that we love one another by not putting stumbling blocks in front of each other. We don't push people towards something that goes against their conscience. We love by not putting stumbling blocks in each other's way. But we also love by giving up personal freedom. And this can be really difficult in a, con- in a, in a culture where everything we want to do is accessible, available, and open to us. Paul is basically saying this. I'm just going to summarize verses 14 to 16 and 20 to 21. He's saying, hey, Christ gave up his life for this person. He's talking to the group that believes that the the food is okay to eat. He's saying, Christ gave up his life for them. Can't you give up your, your desire to eat a little bit of food, to have extra meat at your meal? Christ shed his blood is actually the words that he uses. Christ shed his blood. Why not destroying his, his, his own body so that you could enjoy freedom, but don't destroy someone else's freedom based on that idea. Isn't it appropriate then that you and I would give up some of our freedom also? So you can imagine a scenario where a kid comes to their parents and they've been reading, they've been watching some different uh, documentaries, and they decide, I'm going to go vegan. And they come to mom and dad, and they say, mom, dad, I've got a new conviction about food. I'm going to go vegan. I need you guys to give me an all-vegan diet at this point. Now, what are the parents going to say? They're going to say, you know, son or daughter, we love you. We respect your conscience, uh, but we can't really change our whole diet for you, the one out of all of our children, to have this kind of diet, Right? And so the kid goes away, just, you know, sad and, and despondent, but they think about it some more, and they realize, now this is really like, this is really my conviction. This isn't just me, like, having a, a social moment where I want to be cool. I really think that it's wrong to eat animal products. So they go back to mom and dad and say, hey, mom and dad, I'm actually, I'm really serious about this. In fact, I'm so serious, if I, I'm not going to eat the food that you serve me if you've served meat or animal products, so I'm just going to go hungry. So at that point, mom and dad are obviously going to say, 
okay, well, we'll, we'll give you whatever you need, right? And this actually happened to my sister when she was in high school. And my parents eventually were like, okay, you've, we're, we're going to have to change a little bit. And they, and they began to love her by buying food that she could eat. And that was a wonderful example of what Paul's talking about here, that they were pushing her towards heaven. They were, they were helping her love the things that she loved, and they were making an accommodation. They were giving up their own personal freedom. So just like my sister needed to be loved by, the parent, by my parents, we need to love one another. And, and it might not be food. It might be alcohol. It might be horror movies. It might be whatever it is. People have different convictions about different things. I mean, even the Harry Potter books when they came out where there was a huge hole blue. Oh, there's, there, there's, demon, there's uh, magical creatures and spell casting and like this can't be a Christian thing. And then the seventh book comes out and it's like, wow, it's all about resurrection. Maybe this is a, this is a Christian book after all. Uh, but, but people had different convictions. And, it, and, and in those scenarios, we shouldn't push our, our friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters in Christ to do things that they feel are wrong, even if we are theologically correct. And that's where it really gets us. Even if we're right about something, love looks like giving up our own personal freedom. But love also looks like practicing unselfishness. If you look like at verse 17 through 19, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And so what Paul's saying there is that the kingdom of God is not primarily about the non-essential things. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not about what you eat or don't eat or drink or don't drink or movies you watch. It's about the kingdom. In fact, he's saying if you want to squabble about something, Gentiles and Jews, squabble about this. How much righteousness do you actually have? How much peace do you bring to a situation? How much joy are you exuding in the Holy Spirit? And he adds that little phrase, in the Holy Spirit, just to remind them that you can't do any of this stuff on your own, that it takes a change of the desires of your heart in order to truly love, that love is not only an external action. It's not something you can just conjure up. It is something that has to come from within. The, uh, the author, Michael Corbin, he recently uh, released this set of essays on fatherhood. And in that set of essays, he talk, the main character is told that uh, he, he shouldn't have kids if he ever wants to write a book. And this is an author. His writing is his life. And his friend says, hey, man, if you're ever going to write a book, you, you shouldn't have kids. In fact, for every kid you have, it's probably one less book you're going to write in your lifetime. And you would kind of hope that the author in that moment would push back and say, like, well, I reject your binary, you know, that I can have kids and write a book. But he doesn't do that. But he does say something really awesome at the same time. He does say, if none of my books turns out to be among the bright remnants of the past because I allowed my children to steal my time, to narrow my compass and curtail my freedom, I'm all right with that. Once they've been written, my books, unlike my children, hold no wonder for me. No mystery resides in them. Unlike my children, my books are cruelly unforgiving of my weaknesses, failings, and flaws. Most of all, my books, unlike my children, do not love me back. And the idea, friends, is that in the community of faith, we are real people, and we love one another. And a person is the only thing that can love you back, another person. And so when you love, you are spreading love all around. So how do we bring about the kingdom? How do we do something that is so impossible as bringing the kingdom of God onto earth? We love by practicing unselfishness. And what that means is different for some than others. 
Some of us who lean towards the more permissive side uh, love the Christian freedom. We love our, our cigar and scotch after dinner. For those in that camp, practicing unselfishness looks like strengthening our conscience in the sense of loving others and giving that up. And for those of us that lean a little more cautious, it looks like not stirring up controversy, focusing on joy and righteousness, not worrying and stirring up things, uh, saying, you know, I saw so-and-so do something that I would never do, and spreading that around. It's not worrying about modes of baptism or what color the carpet is or what kind of way we practice the Lord's Supper. It is not stirring up those kind of controversies. It's loving one another by giving up personal freedom. And finally, we love through radical trust in Jesus. If you look at verse 23, he says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And for me, this is the most challenging, convicting verse in the passage. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I mean, that's, that's a tough rule. The love of the Christian, the ideal that Paul is painting is so lofty that to love, to do anything outside of faith in Christ is sinful. And, and for a minute I thought, that can't mean everything. He must just be talking about the food. But all of the commentators agree that he's actually talking about all of our actions. And it doesn't mean that all of our actions need to have a conscious understanding that I'm doing this in faith. It means that your heart has to be changed. Your desires have to be changed by the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, through the death of Christ, in order for your actions to count towards pushing people to heaven, in order for your love to be genuine. It means that nothing in your life will be counted as righteous if it's not grounded in faith. Paul says it elsewhere like this, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And what he means there by faith is radical trust. Radical trust in Jesus. Putting your faith solely and wholly dependent upon the work of Christ. That He is your source of freedom. He is your source of everything. And the reason for that is Jesus is the only one that can change our loves. He is the only one, the way to truly love at all. Imagine a scenario where a parent or a son comes to a dad and says, Hey, can I borrow the car tonight to go out with the friends? The dad says, Yeah, totally. Uh, I would just ask that you wash the car first. And the kid says, okay, yeah, I'm happy to do that. But then a couple hours later goes by. He hasn't washed the car yet. He comes back to Dad, and he says, Dad, I don't, I don't really want to wash the car. I'm, I'm busy. I'm just not really into it. And Dad says, well, we, that's what we agreed. If you want to use the car, you need to wash it. And so the son doesn't want to have any part of it, gets angry, storms off. Dad thinks that's the end of it. I guess he's not going out with his friends. But a couple hours later, he looks out the window, and he sees the son washing the car. Now, in that moment, the dad does not think, well, good on you, son, like you did that for all the right reasons. No, he knows that the kid just wants to go with his friends, and so he's kind of just doing this. His obedience isn't really obedience because it hasn't been wedded to the desire of his heart. His his love is not directed to obedience of dad and love of uh, God. He's just doing this because he wants to go out with his friends. And that is the secret message of Christianity. That, That is the reality that Paul is talking about, that it is only... Only in Jesus can our loves truly change. And we might say, well, how does that work? Why is that? Well, in Isaiah 53, it says that he had no beauty or majesty. He being Jesus, he had no beauty or majesty that we should desire him. If Jesus came to earth today, we wouldn't desire him. We would not count him as something precious. He didn't look cool. He didn't have a following when he started. He's not somebody we would find attractive. He was Middle Eastern. He was poor. He was homeless. 
And yet, he desired us. And the only way to change your desires for God is to have your, the reality of your mind change to understand that his desire is for you. He didn't just die for you because it was something he had to do. He did it out of love. God is a God of love. He longed for you from eternity past, he only, and he created you in love. In fact, he loved us so much, not out of any selfishness in himself, but out of pure gift. Sometimes you and I, we love for all the wrong reasons. We love because we want to get something back. We love because we want to keep a relationship together. We love because we want to subtly destroy something else. And we twist and manipulate our love in all kinds of ways. But God's love is a pure love that is purely a gift. And it's only when you begin to experience that pure gift that you begin to reciprocate that same kind of gift free, caring love that gives of itself, that doesn't put stumbling blocks, that loves one another in a sense of giving up your own personal freedom. It is, it is only then that your life and your heart can be changed. St. Augustine said it this way, the whole life of the good Christian is a holy longing. That is our life, to be trained by longing. And our training through the holy longing advances in the measure that our longings are severed from the love of this world. Only when you have a picture of Christ high and lifted up and your longings are set on Him, as we sang about earlier, then only then can your desire be and your heart truly be for the things of God, to love. And only then will your action be wedded properly to your heart. And only then can you have true obedience. So maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself realizing that your desires are mostly focused on yourself. And you find it hard to give up personal freedom for others. And you tend to be that person who sits on the couch and lets your spouse do the dishes, like I am so much of the time. You find it hard to be selfish. Well, the first, there's two things I would say. The first is join the club. The church is the community that recognizes that we have disordered loves, and we worship a God who reorders them. Welcome to the community of sinners. You found the right place. And the second thing that I would say is join the church and have your desires changed. The whole reason that the church exists in one capacity is to shape our loves. Calvin famously said that our, love, our hearts are idol factories. Well, the church is a factory of loves. The way we design the services, the way that we interact with one another shapes and reorients our whole thoughts toward God. That's why we start with worship. That's why we admit and confess of our sins. That's why we take communion physically, bodily, and understanding in a, in a tactile way that feels its way through the world that we are saved and we are new and we are sinners, and yet Christ set his desire on us. So the second thing I would say is ask him to shape your desires. Ask him to change you from the inside out. Let's pray about those things.